0: My name is Will Lee. I'm a musician by trade and you are listening to Talking Blues.
1: Musician by trade. I'm surprised that you didn't mention bassist, but I guess you play way more than the bass. And I know people know you as a bassist, but um, I presume that you play Piano and other things as much as you do the bass? I started out as a drummer and I
0: still have a huge love to play drums, even though I don't have a set of drums. And I dream of having a set of drums. I dream of having a, a, a setup where you can freely bash out on a set of drums. You know, that would mean like a soundproof basement kind of situation. Um, but yeah, still, still that was my first love and, and got off of the drums because. When we were kids, there weren't people playing the instrument called the electric bass. You know, we were like 11 years old, you know, and kids were whacking away at guitars and bashing away at drums. But what was the bass? You know, what what was the function of that instrument? All I knew was if you did have bass in the sonic spectrum happening, um, you would sound more professional than just people playing bass, uh, playing guitars and drums, you know. So to fill out that sound, we needed a bass player, but we didn't have anybody to to choose from. So I said, okay, I'll I'll switch over to the bass, you know, and we'll get a drummer. Biggest mistake of my life.
1: (laughs) But you also had some, I don't know if interest is the right word, but some experience with trumpet and French horn.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, well, you know, I was trying to be a legitimate guy and uh, that never worked out. I... (laughs) I, I practiced and and learned some trumpet, uh, how, you know, reading, not not necessarily improvising because it was like, it was basically like junior high, high school, level of, you know, playing in marching bands and concert band kind of thing, and that's all about just reading, and 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 you know, trying to be have the best sound and all that stuff, and which led to. Uh, My band director in high school asking me, "Would you mind switching over to French horn? We need French horn players. Everybody's playing trumpet, but nobody's playing French horn. We need French horn for the marching band." So I decided, "Yeah, you know, I don't care. What the heck, you know?" So I went over to French horn for a little um oompa, 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 oompa. And uh, next thing I know, I was, I was playing an instrument that I sounded worse on, and never really got that much better on, except that I. You know, by default, I was, that was my current instrument when I entered college. So I said, let me let this be my major in the beginning of college, which the competition was really deep. And I was, compared to the other French horn players, I was probably the worst they'd ever heard, which was
1: not very encouraging. (laughs) I understand it's a very difficult instrument to play. Yeah, you have to be 100% dedicated. (laughs) So... When you went to school for French horn, at that point, I know you were still playing bass, but what was your goal? Like, what did you think would be the end result of you attending school, majoring in French horn?
0: Getting a decent grade, which even that short term goal never happened when I was playing French horn. You know, so when I, once I got away from that and made bass guitar my major, things started to happen.
1: How easy was it, like, even when you were playing the drums, how easy was it to get into the bass and become a bassist?
0: Well, it was just another, you know, as as I was said at the beginning of our conversation, um, it's one note at a time. I really wasn't really making these hard choices about what should I do. I was just doing what I was doing, and I kept doing that. I didn't have to, you know, have to, have to wake up in the morning and, and make a heavy decision about what what am i going to do today because gigs were there and i was playing bass on some of those gigs you know i had a band in the very beginning which start, which led to other people hearing me and asking me to be in their bands and that kind of stuff
1: you know you were a singer as well from an early age right where did that come from
0: i think it came from my mom actually who was a great singer not uh not a not a high level professional singer by by name nobody would recognize her name but she had the chops the ears and the uh and the soul of a really fine singer and she never really developed it you know she could do it but she didn't do it at the at the you know the level of the money making level which I call is the non honest w- way of making
1: music oh we got to get into that but you yeah, we're into that. <laughs> Your dad was also heavily into music. He was he taught music. Can we talk a little bit about him and what he did and perhaps his influence on you becoming a musician?
0: Yeah, my dad was a, a guy who was 100% committed to music. He was so into it. He loved musicians. He loved playing music. He loved listening to music. He loved composing music. And uh, he wasn't just uh, like a single, you know, he wasn't just a uh, unidirectional guy. He was a guy who was into writing kind of, uh, I guess you could call it uh, uh, neo-classical or something music, as well as being a devotee of bebop. You know, and he really challenged himself to play all of those things and write, not, he didn't write any bebop sort of stuff, but he, he loved playing those songs and, and playing over chord changes and stuff. But he, he had a nice groove and he uh, listened to the best. You know, he listened to Miles and he listened to Sarah Vaughn and he listened to Nancy Wilson and Cannonball Adderley, you know, the greats. So I, I inadvertently got an education at home probably better than anywhere else. Until I finally started you know hands on playing, and that's the best education you know once you get it in there if you if you continue listening, that is that's that's a that's a heavy caveat to that statement. You can't just keep whacking away at it and get so great or get better that much without being aware of what's around you and what has come before you
1: um I know that the Beatles and their Ed Sullivan performance had a major impact on you and your decision to hopefully one day become a musician and, and, and in a way that, that love of the Beatles still continues with you many many years later um, and you still play their music but would, would, you, would it be correct to say that your love of jazz and other forms was influenced greatly by your dad? Oh definitely, without a doubt. I mean I didn't realize the education I was getting
0: just by being in the household and in, in the house when music was playing but it informed me about what's good and what's not good you know as far as like harmonically especially rhythmically um, and dynamically you know i learned all these things inside my body without knowing i was getting this this information coming in it was i was at I was so young i was at that sponge age of two to you know i don't know eleven twelve whatever whenever you start venturing out on your own. But what, before I got to do that, I was in, the, in a house where great music was playing. And I was getting, uh, I, was, I was learning, without knowing I was learning, I was learning about ensemble playing. You know, I was learning about, you know, uh, energy levels and, uh, you know, and just feels and things. And my body now knows what's good and what's bad about that and i think it came from listening to the greats in the jazz world
1: so while you're at school now switching over to the electric bass, are you basically going after jazz is it classical what what are you pursuing musically
0: well i was already gigging at night playing like you know popular music like top 40 stuff and i had a band that was that was writing some really cool stuff but it in school, you know you were at that time limited to what they were teaching, you know, and they were heavily teaching jazz to 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 you know horn players bass players they were they were teaching classical too, but I was really not thinking of playing classical music on a on a bass guitar if you yeah. know so there. so what was offered were being offered was jazz band reading charts while a a big band was playing and you could bring all that groove sort of knowledge and uh, whatever you had you could bring that into into this world and it would and it and it and it 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 applied well you know
1: well you get an offer to audition for dreams a, a, a jazz rock fusion band in the early 70s how did that happen um that was one of
0: those divine intervention kind of things i think because there happened to be a guy who was down at the university of miami while i was you know trudging through my my education um who actually came down to i think he came down to speak at a at an arranging class or something and and he happened to know the the brecker brothers who were in in that band dreams which was the columbia act who uh Amongst all the Columbia horn bands at the time, they were playing so-called jazz rock fusion, if you will. You had Chicago, you had Blood, Sweat and & Tears, and also on the label was this band Dreams, who I, I and most of my close friends found more interesting than anything else because they were, they were doing a lot of soloing, you know, in, improvisational stuff, and, they're in, and they had these super chops guys like Billy Cobham playing drums, Michael Brecker on tenor saxophone, Randy Brecker playing, you know, playing his sort of polytonal, polychordal, you know, uh, approaches to improvising within a, with, you know, playing, a, in, other, in other words, a, here's a chord and here's Randy Brecker, you know, playing against that chord while he's soloing and, and, and it's the sound that, that, and the feeling from what that was, um kind of kind of challenged the envelope of of traditional harmony you know and what you got was a guy playing these really uh bold notes over a chord change right so that really caught your ear and and not only my ear but kind of everybody in my small sphere of of music listening friends so i thought i was listening to the next beatles basically wow you know, the public didn't feel that way, <laughs> unfortunately. But to get a call from a guy in that band to come up on audition because of our, our friend who came down, Mr. Gary Campbell, who came down to, to, to guest lecture and, and heard me play because we jammed that same night after he had given his, his whatever he was giving uh, to our arranging class. Went back to the Breckers in New York and said, "Hey, I think I got your guy. You got to hear this guy. He sounds like the kind of guy you're looking for on bass, you know." And not only was I sounding like the guy, little that uh, little did Gary Campbell know, as he was informing these guys about a random bass player, he didn't realize that they had a fan, a super fan, that came up to New York to audition, knowing their music completely backwards and forwards.
1: So if I was to ask you how you felt about your ability to play at that point, and we're talking somebody who's in his early 20s, um, how would you describe how you felt about your ability at that point? That's
0: really easy to refer to because I feel the exact same way as I did then, now. And that is, um, you know, every time... You walk into a musical situation; it's brand new for me. I don't feel like, I, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do because I know everything about this instrument. I feel just as scared now as I ever did, and have always walked into a new situation feeling that way. Like, am I going to make this happen? Am I going to blow this? Am I going to make this happen? You know, do I have a chance of of helping it along? And honestly.
1: So when you auditioned, did you think you had a good chance of uh, making this band? Or did you think it was just like difficult, unlikely?
0: Well, first of all, I couldn't believe my luck. And you have to imagine like this super band that I was so fond of calling me to play. That little, there was a little bit of information in there telling me that I must have some goods because I'm here, you know? And honestly, I had been in enough playing situations in Miami where I felt like I didn't know there was a difference between um, me having to be the timekeeper and me not having to think about that. But when I got into the audition and Billy Cobham started laying it down, all I had to do was play bass. And it was like the most easy, natural thing in the world. Because there, there weren't uh, drummers at that level where I was coming from, you know. So, you know, the old, the old surround yourself with people better than yourself kind of situation. And that's how I was able to sound, you know, confidently good and feel great about being in an audition situation. Because it was just like floating.
1: I can imagine for somebody that young to play with the musicians of that caliber must be mind-boggling. I would never uh, known that feeling, you know. However, not too yeah. long after, and I don't know how long you did, I think you recorded the second album with them, but things started to crumble apart somewhat. For the band. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and, and as far as I could see, they were coming apart for me too because I didn't really have any other New York thing going on other than that band, you know, for the first... Um, for for the whole life of that band I didn't really have much else going on I was there for that band but I was inadvertently making connections that were going to that were going to help me continue on and, and get into the studio world and all that other
1: stuff within that band these cuz these guys were heavies you know so that became your new career which is becoming a studio musician how easy is it to your foot in the door and to establish yourself in the new york studio session scene well apparently it's easy because i got in (laughs) do you remember your first studio gig oh sure
0: yeah actually i'm thinking that the first like uh, i think the my first new york studio gig was a weird um rip-off copy of the shaft album and there was a label, and they were called Pickwick Records, and, and they had their, their business, I don't know what else they did besides this, but they would take a popular album of the day and, and re-record it and put, a, and put a label, put a, put a cover on the, on the vinyl album that looked a little bit like the, the, the real thing. You know, Maybe it could be it, and I'm not sure, but it's only 99 cents, so I'm going to buy that. And they would sell it at 7 Eleven, you know, for like 99 cents as opposed to three or four dollars that the, that, the, that the real album sold for. And people would somehow, I guess, buy it enough to keep that company alive because they did this. That's what, that's what their business was. And so our job was, you know, go in. Um, an arranger, in this case, the arranger was the father of the, the guitarist in Dreams, right? It was his project. And I got on it because the guitarist in Dreams was on it, and he said, "Let's get Will to play bass." And you know, it, this is my first New York session, and I was blown away because not only was Michael Brecker playing flute and stuff on these on these Shaft album tracks, these so-called Shaft album tracks, um, you had um, the, the drummer walked in, and it was Denny Sywell from Wings. And me being a Beatleist, I was completely, like, awestruck when I saw this guy walk in because, of course, I had followed McCartney's career after the Beatles, and, there, and there's the drummer from Wings walking in the door, you know. And it, just because he was, he was a New York studio guy, you know, that's where he came from. So Bob Mann, who was making the calls to the musicians, knew to call him because knew he could cut the gig, and he just happened to be off, at that moment from the wings thing. And uh, that was like mind blowing, you know. So, so that was my first New York session.
1: Wow, so so very quickly you, you got a taste of that scene and, and m- not maybe the glorified version of it, but working with great musicians. And and so did it quickly progress from there to other session work?
0: It, it did, you know, and, and- and when you say not glorified to me that was as as important as any session i've ever done you know they're all important for the same reason i mean you're trying you have this goal of making the music the best it can be right right
1: so, so i didn't i all- didn't mean to minimize it but you it's know, kind of interesting when know, know.
0: yeah in in the in the big world it's pretty insignificant but it's you know it's the same it's the same attitude me walking in scared me hoping I can make it happen you know it's no different than any other session
1: was there a point and I don't know if such a point exists where I mean you've done over 2,000 recordings and you say you still get nervous but was there a point where you thought you had kind of not made it but established yourself in the scene and you felt very comfortable being a New York session musician
0: yes and no but uh, the reason that I was able to slide my foot in the door of the New York session was because people couldn't make the session. And I didn't want to be the unavailable guy that couldn't make the session. So I I realized I was like one, one, uh, one refusal to do a session away from having my foot back out the other door <laughs> of not being a, a session musician, you know? Because there's, there are a lot of there are a lot of things that have to that have to be in play for that to happen. You have to be available. That's number one. You know, so if you suddenly, you know, become somebody who's not, uh, who is not who uh, is not you know uh, accessible or are are giving you know bringing the goods to any particular session, then they're gonna start looking the other way for somebody who can be in that situation, you know?
1: But is there a difference between, let's say, the recording session you just described, trying to make a Shaft-like album to, let's say, commercial jingles, to being the bass player for a, a recording session for a named artist? Is there a difference in the way you approach that or how you get those gigs?
0: well you you start getting the subsequent gigs from after that first gig from a little bit of a reputation that you start to establish you know but in each in each situation it's it's kind of different because some of the ones you're talking about, like the shaft one or a particular jingle say there's reading involved, and reading music is uh is just completely. The most important thing in the world for people who want to have you come in, and nail something immediately, because if you you know if the music is if, if the music is not something you have to go fishing for to get to, then it's going to happen way faster than guys trying to sitting sitting around in a room trying to work something out for a long time. You know. In other words, if there's an arranger who's got the specific parts written for every instrument. They know that it's going to gel if all you do, all you have to do is read the notes, you know. So there's, that's a big thing in the jingle world, especially. And it's a you know, time is is crucial. You can't be late, and you got to, you got to be ready to, you know, walk in and have them push the button and you perform. Got it. Records, it's a little looser because you have, you know, you have discussions and you work things out and different kinds of budgets and stuff. You know, record companies at the time, anyway. Our company budgets were were really big.
1: Tell me about the first recording session with a major label that you were involved in um i you know I think that had to be that had to be the the second dreams
0: album and that was going down to Memphis for six weeks under the, uh, the under the production uh, of Steve Cropper, who had a, an amazing track record you know writing writing uh knock on wood and, and midnight hour and uh dock of the bay and all that stuff um he was a guy who you know it was great to listen to him produce because he had a desire to keep in his words got to keep my pool watered <laughs> you know he uh you know he wanted to, to he knew what success felt like and he didn't want to he didn't want to leave that world. He wanted to stay, you know, a guy on who was on top of his game, of making hit records. So, not that Dreams was supposed to be a hit record-making entity, but Clive Davis, the record company president at, at the time, wanted Dreams to to give them some success in, you know, in in the uh, the, the radio play world for sure, and the sales world definitely, you know. So he was encouraging us to to really not even be ourselves. He really was encouraging us to be this other thing, which kind of led to the end of the band, in a way, because it was unnatural for that band to try to be that thing. And uh, you know, when you have a guy like Billy Cobham being being asked to, you know, let's uh, by Maha Vishnu to come over here and, and, and do this other new, innovative thing it's pretty tempting for a guy like him who doesn't want to just play two and four on the drums, you know, which he's great at, but he saw this other thing in front of him and he, he was out the door. And that was the beginning of the end of dreams.
1: And, and was that your first exposure at the the business of music? Um, I don't know. I mean,
0: you know, you're... you're you're always seeing uh aspects of that you may not be in in on the big meetings right you know but you know it's always uh it's almost always time is money you know there's always that element at play you don't want to be wasting anybody's time when you're in the studio especially so you know i was always aware of a certain amount of that
1: How do you maintain this being available for as many sessions as possible so you can continue to be available for more sessions while are you doing any other music outside of studio work like are you do you have any side projects at that point that you might want to start a band or fill in for other musicians for gigs?
0: Yeah, whatever whatever I was doing, I was aiming toward the things that were were in, in town, say, in New York City, without going on the road for sure. Because uh, there was one point where I was actually on the road, and I was uh, I remember being with on on Bette Midler's first national tour. And as I'm on the road, um, I'm getting calls to to do sessions in New York while I'm on. The, out somewhere in, out in the country with, with that middler. And I'm real remembering that, hey man, um, the reason I got into the studio thing was because somebody else was on the road, you know, and now they may not be working as much because I came in and took over for those people. I never let anybody know I was on the road. I would fly back to New York for the smallest session. Because I was just getting my foot in that door. I was just becoming like a studio guy. So I wasn't so established that I could just waltz back and forth, you know. So I would, I would actually get on a plane, go do an hour session and get back out into Missouri or wherever we were playing for that night's gig. <laughs> I was busting my ass.
1: Did it get to a point where now you have established yourself, and so you could afford to go on short tours and and not lose opportunities? Um,
0: I'm still, you know, I'm still having to say no. But before I say no, I I'm, I'm always asking, you know, can I do it another time? Can it happen another time? And you know, sometimes they'll move it, and sometimes they have to have a have to have it happen when everybody else is available. If it's, a, if it's a, you know, one of those lovely dates where everybody's in the same room. But I do so much uh, in my computer now for people. Right. It's not like the studio scene anymore. It doesn't really exist anymore.
1: Did you, and I presume that being a studio musician, a session musician for different types of music, albums or jingles, has, takes a certain discipline versus you being a live musician, which I presume takes a different kind of discipline. So when you spent so many years in the studio with the charts, and I'm I'm sure it's not always with charts, but doing paid gigs for a short period of time, did that ever affect your live playing? Oh, what, you mean just- uh, Not doing as uh, much live gigs over a long period of time.
0: Um I mean live gigs informed studio gigs, and studio gigs informed live gigs for different reasons. The live thing is a little bit more crazy it's a little bit more like you you already have all your your, your gear together and working well and all that stuff and you, and you um, you know your limitations, but you're also you're, what you're getting out of the live gig is you're getting a lot of spirit to bring into what you play in the studio.
1: Right.
0: Right? In the studio, what you get is you get the focus on, on like really tweaking your instrument and your sound and your tuning of it and, you know, those kinds of things. So, you know, so that can become, in, uh, you know, second nature when you're out on the road bashing away and, and jumping around and having a good time in front of an audience, you know? Anyway, I hope that answers your question.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, at what point... <laughs> So at one point or another, you get the offer to join the David Letterman Show. How did that happen? Is that from your association with Paul Schaefer in the session world? or was it Very else? much so, yeah. In fact, the whole band at the
0: time was, was a, an entity that he, that he not only knew us individually, but he knew us as a band and participated in, in the making of our second album. He was kind of a co-producer in a way on our second out of three albums that we had done. It was a band with, with uh, Steve Jordan, Hiram Bullock, the guitarist, and uh, Clifford Carter, the keyboard player. But, you know, he being the keyboard player, he just kind of grabbed the, the other three of us that that weren't the keyboard player and found himself, you know, having a, a ready-made sort of rhythm section that he knew uh, I'm not going to even say the limitations of he. He knew that we could groove together, and he knew that we had a big repertoire of songs that we kind of shared commonly, interest-wise, with what he loved, which was a lot of like James Brown, the Beatles, Stones, you know, Motown, and we could. He knew we could cut all that stuff that he had in mind for the music of that of that show.
1: So when this idea of being the show's band was presented to you, how what did you think about it initially?
0: Uh, about the idea of it?
1: Yeah. Playing well, for the David Letterman show.
0: Well, the first thing I thought of was it wasn't really a show yet. It was a pilot of a show, for a show. And in other words, I guess what that means is there's no guarantee that it's ever going to become a show. So... They're, that means a guy is being given a chance by a network to give this thing a, a try and see if it'll fly. So even even with that li- limited amount of, of of known work, it was 13 weeks, which I had never in my life imagined having, because I'm always like one gig at a time, you know. I'm coming from that whole that whole world of like, you know, each thing's a one-off and there's no guarantee you're going to ever work again after that, you know. So here's 13 weeks of solid work, which blew my mind just thinking about it. Like, wow, I've never had this before. This is unbelievable, you know. And then next thing you know, they renewed it. Oh, oh my God, another 13 weeks coming. Holy crap, I can't even believe my luck. This is getting to be like, Something that's blowing my mind. I can't believe this is happening again. Next thing you know, we get a three-year contract. What? What is that? You know?
1: (laughs) Does this affect your studio work, though? Because is it a schedule that you can work around? Or how does that affect you? Well, that became a thing where,
0: um, you know, I'd be getting calls for things. And and I'd have to say, look, man, I'm sorry. I can't, you know, do that whole stretch of time. Can you can you can you work around me you know and, and and that was not very amusing to most producers there was one guy Arif Martin, who who had the patience of a saint and was willing to work around me up to a point and then he, i think he he got, he got a little tired of that game too after a while so he started like finding replacements for me because they didn't want to put a hole in the middle of a, of a session especially when the music had, was really gelling and you know they were getting a rhythm going. And, oh, sorry, I got I to gotta go. You know, what, no, that's not, that's not how it works in the studio world. So, yeah, it definitely
1: put a dent in my uh, participation in a lot of projects. Did that worry you or were you thinking, hey, you know, I'm seeing this other thing which is creating a lot of other opportunities. How did you adjust to that? It took a bit of, um,
0: I, had to, I had to channel my good friend Ralph McDonald, over and over again, who was the great studio percussionist and, and songwriter who wrote Where is the Love and, you know, Mr. Magic and all these great you know, great productions that he was part of. I had to think about him telling me you know, when he saw my dilemma and he saw that what I was I was freaking out about this whole thing that you're asking about. And he said, You can't make all the money And you know, his voice still rings in my head, you know, over and over again, when I can't do everything. I can't fit it all in, you know?
1: But was it about money? I mean, I don't want to get into the specifics, but I mean, was it about money or opportunity?
0: No, no, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's his that's his interpretation. Right. That's his way of putting it. You can't do all the gigs, you know? I mean, there are gigs. My wife loves telling the story. I was actually fooled into being in a studio when it was my 50th birthday. And I was fooled into it by Ralph McDonald, he was in on the plot, to show up at a studio where everybody was there and surprised, and one of those kind of things. But I was talked into being there because it was, and it, 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 he had pretended there was gonna be a, a Jamaica tourism spot sung by Jimmy Buffett. And I was so excited about this, that even though it was wonderful that I was surprised for my birthday, I'm still, there's a hole in my heart wanting to do that session. <laughs> that to make a tourism spot with Jimmy Buffett. It never happened. It's like, oh, man, I'm still dying to do it.
1: <laughs> um, how did that experience being in that, on that TV show change you?
0: Well, um, you know, first of all, I was a really big fan of David Letterman from way before the show that we were doing ever started. I used to watch him on carson when he was guest hosting or when he was a featured stand-up and he just always really made me laugh in a way that nobody else could so when you think about it you know the band is sitting over in our corner not playing for most of the show and what i'm getting for free is to be paid to sit there and watch a fantastically hilarious TV show. You know, so I loved it. I loved all that stuff.
1: And then the other thing is the fact that being the house band, you got to play with some amazing musicians. Amazing. Yeah. And so what would be the difference between preparing for the tonight's guest and you have a one-off where you have to execute the song once I mean, I guess your, your background as a session musician might have helped that thing of coming in every day fresh with a new thing and then having to deliver that performance that day. Not only did it, did it help in that respect,
0: we had one take to get it right. There were no redos. So, you know, the level that you had to be at with your instrument and with music itself and familiarizing yourself with that artist stuff, or preacher song, especially, you know, you really had to do some homework, and um, you know, I think everything that led up to that, you know, including the studio playing, including live playing, including um, you know, learning how to how to internalize somebody's music, all came into play, which that allowed us to to get that thing in one take, you know, in front of a
1: Bunch of people on camera, while you're on camera. I can't. I've, I used to watch that show religiously. I certainly haven't watched them all. But I can't remember a single performance where I thought, whoa, that wasn't good. Like, there were some very memorable moments where I thought, my God, I can't believe they did that. Right. You know, and yeah. how good it was.
0: Well, you know, yeah, the studio thing gives you that chameleon thing, too, you know, where you're able to, to, to waltz in and out of different worlds of music you know so there was all that information was coming into play too
1: you know i wonder and this has come come up a few times when i hear some of the work that you do musically on your own or with other bands it's definitely jazz influence really? some of your solo work has that element but it's more songwriting i think right not not necessarily pop but but definitely a, a singer-songwriter type feel to some of your songs. In your mind, are you a rock musician or are you a jazz musician or are you not neither, you're just a musician? I just like music. I like anything that's in tune and in
0: time. I I don't want it to sound like anything else. And if it does, it's I don't know why. Because I don't take somebody's idea and go, oh, I'm going to write a song like that. I just come from like I try to come from a pure place when I when I write a, a song. And I, I I try to I try to come from uh like I try to take the very first inkling of inspiration that I get and try to develop it, you know. And it's not from watching T V and hearing something or listening to the radio and, and going back to a piano after that. It's always just because of what's in my head. Let me see if I can oh, that caught my ear. Let me see if I can if I can develop that and take it somewhere. And it's really hard. It takes a For me, it's really hard to write a song. I mean, it takes me forever. Nothing ever happens
1: like in five minutes for me. And what do you hope, like you've done a few solo albums, what is your ultimate goal with recording your own stuff? Is it just so you have a record of the stuff that you've written? Or is it because you want to perform it live or?
0: no? Actually, you know what it is, man, it's just wanting to complete um it's the it's the great satisfaction of having completed a song you know it's one thing to hear it in your head but it, but it, it's another thing to make it presentable you know so i just love it if anybody ever gets anything from any of my songs it's not really to try to go for mass appeal it's nothing like that it's only because i just want to get to the end you know of 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 a thing
1: so i because until I do, I can't really move on. Um, is the way you approach your album any different from the way you approach session work? Like, I think it would miss you most of all, the latest single. Um, I believe you sang on it, but I don't think you played bass on that's it. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And is that, I mean, that's unusual, is it not? Well, I, I could have, but I had this idea. You know how
0: it's great when, when, like, any two or three family members make music together you know whether it's singing or or playing like in 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 the case of the Brecker brothers Mike and Randy Brecker had a blend that was really only matchable by one other guy and that was his name was Dave Sanborn is Dave Sanborn when he joined those three guys he was like his phrasing and his his uh, his dynamics and everything matched there so perfectly that was a really rare thing so well, when I was doing Miss You most of all, I, I definitely wanted to have my friend Ricky Peterson play on it. He was a great keyboard player, but he happens to have these two brothers that are just amazing musicians as well. And I thought, well, and one of them is a bassist. And, and he happens to play upright, which I don't do. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to get these three guys playing on this? And it might really have a nice gel to the whole thing because they, of the way they play together. And I, and I love the way it came out. And the first part of your question um, re- reminded me, that I'm getting back to that, and that is the, the thing about approaching my own things differently than I would with a studio, uh, you know, somebody's studio project, is that I never, I have the hardest time thinking of anything to play on my own stuff. <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of what, what am I gonna do bass wise? I can't come up with a part, I can't think of anything. It takes a while to get there.
1: You write on piano or guitar? Um, sometimes bass, sometimes piano, sometimes guitar. Okay. Yeah. So if you wrote with a bass, it's the, is it just the chords? Is that the way it would work? Uh, well,
0: Miss You most of all absolutely came from just a piano thing, right? That was one of the rare, I guess, one of the more rare things. Something will come from a guitar lick. Like I have a song called um, um, Fooled Him. And... That came from um I think I was inspired by a, a little I a, had a nylon string guitar in my hand and I came up with it to dit and dan it. And and I built it around that thing, which I had Chuck Loeb ultima- ult- ultimately play the part. But uh it was based on that, you know.
1: Um In the last few months that we've been corresponding, you've been to Japan a few times. I think you have a a pretty good relationship with Japan. I think you had a hit single there. um, And I think you go there on a regular basis. Tell me about that relationship. Um,
0: When I first went to Japan, it was with that band that, that became the Letterman Band, the 24th Street Band, those guys. And it was really wild because we, before we ever set foot on the ground there, we had already established some kind of momentum due to a record that had come out. And we were already like, we already were like, you know, we had a fan base and we had people that were super, super excited to see us. And I've never experienced that in my life. <laughs> Nobody's ever excited to see me. But in Japan, uh, we couldn't even walk down the street together. We thought we, we you know, we could have easily gotten a, a Beatles complex, you know. <laughs> We're like the fucking Beatles, man. Um, You know, we really were, if I was seen in a record store, I would see people like run out of the store to go get something for me to sign. You know, if I was just in a record store like fishing through, through, through albums and stuff for my own entertainment, I would, out of the corner of my eye, I would see people like, oh my God, that's Willie, you know, that kind of thing. So, what I realized about about Japan, and I, I guess this is something that we should all all of us musicians should give thanks for. Like and that is be it big or small, if you do something, um if you put a if you put a, a song out, say, and it gets it's gonna get heard if it gets heard by somebody there's your fan base. You're going to start a fan base, be it huge or tiny. Because in Japan, what I noticed, for all walks of music, there is a fan base for Bossa Nova. There's a fan base for The Ventures. There's a fan base for Polka. There's a fan base for Rockabilly. Anything you can name, there is a certain fan base about, uh, for that music that are so um, faithful and so avid, so into what you're doing that you might as well just do something you know kind of, I want that to give hope to anybody <laughs> you know who who thinks that nobody cares about what they're doing. somebody
1: somewhere cares you know, and that's what I get does it make you wonder you know you have this following in Japan why that doesn't translate into maybe other places? Um, I guess the curiosity isn't there,
0: you know, um, in Japan, like many other places too, but Japan is like my reference points about that is that, uh, um, there's a certain value that's put upon, uh, at definitely Western, you know, Western stuff. And there's also this other thing. There's this thing that, that kept record companies alive, for, uh, record stores alive, excuse me, record stores, like Tower. Like there were you know, tens of, there was like 60 Tower record stores, last time I checked, still f- flourishing in Japan. And, and there is something about the, the aspect of, of physically holding a treasure in your hand and examining everything about it you know, like I was known uh, I have people that know more about the credits of what I've been been on than than I've ever could ever remember my own self, you know, and I will actually make the phone call to to some of those people to say, "Can you tell me that I play on this?" or you know,
1: what do you know?" <laughs> um, with the two thousand albums that you've recorded or more. Do you have any that just stand? I mean, I'm not sure. I'm sure there's many, many. But is there any one that are, that's really special to you? Oh, so many. All those recordings.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think about some many. of these Phoebe Snow records that I go back and listen to that I think, you know, were really, really well-recorded, well-produced, well-arranged. And then there's Phoebe, you know, the singer. And uh, that's, you know, and there's a, there's one that nobody ever heard of that, uh, is one of my all-time favorites, and Steve Gadd and I share this too, that we because bo- we both played on it, and it's the New York that I was part of.
1: Can we find this on a streaming platform?
0: I is it available anywhere? To an extent, you can find some of it on YouTube and stuff. There's there's an album called Make Every Day Count, and it, there's another one that's called I think it's called. Maybe it's just called NYCC, as in New York Community Choir.
1: Yeah. Okay. Really um, fun stuff. I, I should wrap this up, but I, I have to ask you about the Beatles. So I find it so interesting that you were drawn into music in a serious way when you saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show. You played at the, on the stage of the Ed Sullivan Theater for many, many years. You I believe got a chance to play with or record with each of the Beatles, which is pretty phenomenal in separate situations. and. You've certainly worked with some of them in a live situation. The latest Beatles song. Tell me your thoughts on that. Um.
0: Well, it's hard for me to see it as a Beatles song. You okay. know, Which if, makes sense. Even though everybody supposedly uh, participated. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's, there's so much more uh, that John Lennon you know, actually put down on tape. There's, there's so many demos and stuff, and they, and they could have chosen any, any number of things that he, that he didn't complete himself and said, let's just take over and call it a Beatles song. Um, it doesn't really, there's, there, are, there are two other tracks that are very much in the same category of, of what now and then uh, it can be placed in, and those, those are the song Real Love and Free as a Bird where the Beatles decided, let's take over and call it a Beatles uh, track, that um, who knows if John Lennon would have approved of of any of this. I think back about how how they collectively felt about um, the Let It Be album, after it got sort of taken out of their hands, and Phil Spector came in and and put all these string arrangements on things that they never imagined there being strings on, supposedly not really digging it you know as much as the raw versions of the let it be stuff and they even put that out as let it be naked many many years later um which was supposed to be supposedly the original uh intended sound of that of those songs so i don't really know you know i mean i love that i love the the video more than the than the finished product i think myself um i was astounded by what peter jackson was able to do with AI, um, and I think that the that the the version of now and then that that is out there that everybody is hears is is maybe something that's a little little watered down compared to what it could be because it's got so much arrangement on it and so many parts and and you know um, I think John Lennon's. Uh, you know, the sound of him and his, his piano and his voice uh, kind of take a backseat to some of that stuff on this hmm. particular production, where I think his version of it would be a bit raw, maybe. I mean, I lo- it's always good fun, though. You know, I'm great. great I'm, I'm glad everybody's having fun doing that stuff, and it is amazing. Does AI worry you? Um, it can be used for good or for evil, you know just like anything else. (laughs) Like I said about my own family members, my brother and my two sisters, uh, who continued, who who were just, who were so musical, because they all came from my parents, right? We all came from my parents, and uh, what I like to say about them is, you know, they're they're so great, they're so musical, but they never uh, went professional. In other words, they
1: make music for honest reasons compared to me. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> but you still have yeah. the love of music right oh of course oh that's uh, that'll always be so yeah. final question do you have goals at this point
0: well you know we talked about John Lennon a second ago having all these unfinished pieces I have more than he had more, ever ha- has ever had
1: so the goal would be to finish them or yeah, leave them? them
0: actually finish them would be such a such a
1: pleasure well
0: I just gotta stop working so I can get to my stuff.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much. As I said, I've been trying to interview you for many, many years, and I'm so thrilled to do this. So I really appreciate you doing oh, man. this. Oh, I'm honored. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. All right.